Hello, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Stone Page Archaeology News Podcast number 254. I'm your host, Phil Panton. Now, before we get into any of the bigger stories, I would like to start off by saying thank you very much to everybody who downloaded the podcast. It has been absolutely wonderful, and the feedback we've gotten is amazing. And to everybody else who sent in suggestions, we have taken all of those into account, and we will be doing our best to provide the absolute best prehistoric news that we can for you. And speaking of the news, let's get to them. And of course, today, as always, all the news have been gathered from several sources around the web and can all be viewed on the website at news.stonepages.com. And of course, the news today, starting off with a story that we didn't miss last week, we were just teasing it for this week, and because we didn't have any Stonehenge news, the discovery of Bulgaria's largest dolmen. From Bulgaria, we will be going to North Africa, where we find out that escargots might actually be North African and not French as previously thought. Very tasty news. From North Africa, we will need our winter coats as we go to the Hebrides, where we find seven Bronze Age swords and an ancient lock. From the Hebrides, we go to Ireland, where we need to do some mountaineering to study some 5,000-year-old tombs from Northwestern Ireland. After Ireland, we will be going to Devon where we find a Bronze Age enclosure. And from Devon, we just go to General Human Study where we look at human disability in the early human populations and how that may actually have helped us evolve as a species. From that story, we go to Alaska where we may have found the original Native Americans who settled the rest of North America as well as Southern America. Very cool news, and from those genealogy news, we will be keeping the theme by studying the fourth line of ancestry of the European populations. All of that is covered in this podcast, so let's get to it. And now for a story that really rocks, which is the exclusive story of Podcast 254, namely the discovery of the largest dolmen in Bulgaria. The dolmen, along with a peculiar stone egg, as well as other megalithic monuments, were recently discovered near Slatosel in Bulgaria by a thirsiologist, Professor Valeria Fol, who presented the results of the excavations to the public for the first time. Up until now, the area had been very hard to reach and had only been known by a few mountaineers as a result of this. Fold dates the dolmen as well as the other megalithic monuments to around the 2nd millennium BC, stating that this dolmen is part of the earliest aristocratic necropolis in the region of the Brasova municipality. She believes that the newly discovered dolmen is the family tomb of an ancient Thracian royal or aristocratic family. Fall also adds that this dolmen was indeed just one part of a large dolmen necropolis. Unfortunately, it is the only one of the dolmens that has been preserved standing. It is the size of a two-room apartment. The other megaliths could be lifted and restored. Fall also states that in ancient times, stone was seen as a divine matter, and that ancient Thracians specifically believed that humans could acquire a status between human and divine nature, which is referred to as anthropodemon. As mentioned in the start, Along with the dolmen was also found a megalithic monument as well as a stone egg. The megalithic monument comes in the form of a shrine with a huge stele in its middle, along with the megalith set to resemble a stone egg. Fall says that this is a rock shrine dedicated to the sun, which has a huge stele in its middle. The stone stele alone is two and a half meters tall. According to the other archaeologists, the stone egg is meant to symbolize the birth of life. However, it seems that the stone egg has sadly fallen from its original place, leading some people like Shenya Milcheva, who's the chief editor of Magazine 8, and is actually to publish a detailed report of this excavation to call for people to raise the stone egg back to its original position where people placed it several thousand years ago. 
And now for a slightly warmer and tastier story from North Africa, where it turns out that escargots may in fact actually be North African and not French as previously thought. This is based on the results of an excavation done in part by the Liverpool John Morris University, the Queen's University Belfast, as well as the University of Cambridge, who were studying the Hawafatia Cave Complex, which is near the coast in northeastern Libya. The results of the new excavation pushed back the dating of the first occupation of the area about 70,000 years, from 80,000 BC to 150,000 BC. This was done through the radio carving of large mollusk shells which were found in the area. Like with any archaeological find, the find itself is not very interesting. What does make any find interesting, though, is the context. Specifically, here the mollusk shells were all pierced in the back by a sharp object. The conjecture here is that the early humans would poke a hole in the back of the mollusk, which would then release the vacuum and allow the North Africans to suck out the mollusk from its shell. Dr. Chris Hunt from Liverpool John Morris University said that these people certainly ate a lot of snails, but they also ate plant foods including pine nuts, wild fruits, and seeds of wild plants, and animals, including barbary sheep, tortoises, and antelopes. We think people were pretty short of food around 10,000 years ago that they had to gather even really small snails. Small shells are rather difficult to gather, and you don't get much food value from them, so people only do it when they are desperate. He went on to add that the snails in the oldest part of the cave sequence are pretty unusual because archaeologists have not reported evidence like this before at this time. Now, Dr. Hunt's last statement does bring up a big question, why were they never reported? My best guess, and the obvious guess, is that they were never really seen as a food source. However, it does beg another interesting question. If we take the case of Haofetia, can we use snail shells, for example, to study times in which food is very scarce? And if so, is it possible to link these up to either environmental or political factors of the area? It would be a very interesting study, probably very difficult, but it does bring up a new way to study how the environment or political factors had an influence over people's daily lives, even going down to like the specific diet. And now for a slight temperature change, going from North Africa to the Inner Hebrides of Coal in Scotland, where a prehistoric weapon burial was found in a nature reserve. The nature reserve is managed by the RSPB Scotland, the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, who, along with the National Museums of Scotland and the Scottish Treasure Trove Unit, excavated an area which was previously known as a freshwater lock. The RSPB were there to ensure that the archaeological investigations did not impair the conservation, sustainability, and preservation of the natural habitats in the area. And the Treasure Trove Unit of Scotland was there to ensure that any significant objects from Scotland's past would be collected and given to the museum for public benefit. The excavation seems to have been a success, unearthing signs of an ancient ceremony in the form of at least seven weapons, all of which date back to approximately 1000 BC. It is believed that these weapons were thrown into the lock as part of a ritual to appease the gods. I can already hear the prehistoric archaeologists nodding knowingly. Trevor Cowie, who works with the National Museums of Scotland, specifically in the Department of Scottish History and Archaeology, said that while a fair number of objects from this period have been discovered in the west of Scotland in the past, we generally know very little about the precise places where they were found. Archaeological techniques have developed dramatically since the first 19th century discoveries were made, so we have a great opportunity here to resolve many unanswered questions about life on coal some 3,000 years ago. The objects will be displayed in Kilmartin Museum in Argyll, and it is hoped that local museums and universities will further investigate the history of the objects as well as the area in greater depth. 
Sadly, the story says nothing about whether or not the RSPB provided a bird's eye view of the site. Now, our next story comes to us from Ireland, where a 5,000-year-old tomb has recently been discovered. Now, I would like to preface this story by saying that my Irish is just about as good as my Serbo-Croatian, so please feel free to connect any uh, pronunciation mistakes that I may make during this story. Recently, a hilltop tomb was discovered close to the edge of the Taubon Mountain in the Leitrim County, which is about 300 kilometers west of Dublin and may actually be more than 5,000 years old. The archaeologist who discovered the tomb, as well as several other tombs in the area, is archaeologist Michael Gibbons, who suggests that there are layers of history here spanning from the Neolithic, the Bronze, Iron, as well as the post-medieval periods, and actually challenges the widely held view that there wasn't any settlement going on in this area of the North Leitrim County in the prehistoric times. Last year, human remains were found on Nocneria Mountain in Sligo County and were subjected to carbon dating. The results of the carbon dating showed that the bones were about 5,500 years old. The tomb in question was discovered by Gibbons as he was exploring the hill summit above the well-known landmark called Eagles Rock, which is more than 600 meters above sea level. He states that this one is a Neolithic tomb probably built 5,500 years ago as a communal burial area. It is a spectacular setting overlooking Donegal Bay, Sleeve League, Loch Melvin, and Glenet Lake. He then adds, it was an incredible achievement to construct it here, noting that the area that the tombs are built on is about 300 meters above today's modern settlements. Though he does note that obviously it was a good deal warmer and drier in the early Neolithic period. The tomb itself is not a singular context, it is actually part of a wider range of hilltop tombs across the northwest of Ireland, which includes the massive stone mon- monument called Queen Mab's Grave on Nocneria. Apart from the tombs, there's also a range of other activities in the area spanning several thousand years. Apart from Bronze Age animal enclosures, this also includes late medieval settlements, which were used as temporary dwellings during the summer when the cattle were sent up the mountain to graze. And now we go to Red Haze Exeter in the United Kingdom, where Bronze Age enclosure has recently been discovered in Devon. The discovery of the enclosure is a result of the wish to construct 930 dwellings in the area, and under terms put down by the Devon Country Council prior to the construction of the dwellings, detailed archaeological investigations must be undertaken before any works are begun. The site itself has always been of particular interest to archaeologists, and it is believed that the settlement has been occupied from the Neolithic times and all the way up to the Anglo-Saxon settlements, and possibly even later. As part of this, Cotswold Archaeology, which was the team carrying out the investigations, started with geophysical surveys as well as trial trenches. Richard Griotorix, who is the principal fieldwork manager, said that we have identified a Bronze Age enclosure with a 2 meter deep ditch. These enclosures are a bit of a mystery in that they don't appear to be defensive as there are no stores or homes within them, but they look far too large to be simply for retaining livestock. We have found some remains of up to 70 burials within the enclosure, which we believe to be from the late Roman or post-Roman British Anglo-Saxon period. We have also found a number of furnaces or corn dryers used to dry a variety of cereals and several additional Bronze Age ditches as well as later post-medieval ones. The site has clearly been in use for a long time. While there is still a lot to do, the team hopes to identify everything that has been found, as well as to produce a report and publicly display all of the finds early next year. Now, this story is particularly interesting due to the fact that in the last podcast, we covered a story of an Iron Age village also found in Devon. 
If you don't know which story I'm talking about, you can go listen to the last podcast or you can go to news.stonepages.com to find the story as well as the sources for all of the stories in this podcast and any stories that we may have missed. If you remember from our last podcast, another archaeological team in Devon also found a site with a large amount of continuity, though only reaching back to the Bronze Age as compared to the Neolithic period in this story. However, it is really worth noting that there seems to be several areas in Devon with a large amount of continuity in them, leading me to believe that there is probably a very, very good source to go out and dig up a lot more of Devon to try to find more of these sites, as they could be very interesting to study and see how people moved and how times changed over a long and steady period of time due to the fact that people don't really seem to move away from these areas. And now we go to England where a father-daughter team has proposed a new evolutionary theory that might explain how critically small populations of early humans survived despite the increased chance of passing on hereditary disabilities to their offspring. The typical view of how evolution is seen is best explained by Dr. Isabel Winder from the Department of Archaeology at York, who states that molecular biologists usually interpret genetic data by assuming a diverging hierarchy and statistically large populations. Hominid populations were small and lineages seemed to have diverged and reconverged in a way that could cause molecular clocks to speed up, slow down, and even run backwards. Dr. Nick Winder from Newcastle University continues saying that in situations where the probability of producing disabled offspring was high, the fittest individuals would be those that could help their offspring coexist with this vulnerability. Those that were a little smarter, more flexible, and more compassionate would have been at an advantage. Isabel continues from where her father leaves off, saying that like many other scientists, we believe anthropologists need an extended synthesis, able to accommodate situations where lineages reconverge, disabling genes may be flushed out of hiding, and organisms are capable of social learning that they then turn to their advantage. Our vulnerable ape, in quotation marks, hypothesis could be part of that extended synthesis. Genetic vulnerability was the trigger that set our ancestors on the path to symbolic language, innovation, and pro-social cooperation. Nick continues, the reason every new fossil or DNA study seems to force a rethink of human evolution is that biologists are committed to a divergent hierarchical model, with fierce competition between individual members of large populations. The new evidence tends to be much less baffling if you accept that ancient populations were often small, and that early homonyms had even more complicated sex lives than our own. He then continues, the traditional competitive model encourages us to think of the relatively high incidence of genetic disability in our past as a threat but the anthropological evidence suggests that the incidence of genetic disability was probably much higher in the distant past. We have a good reason to believe that compassion, ingenuity, and behavioral flexibility helped our ancestors cope with this vulnerability. Now, I'm sorry that this story has mostly been quote reading, but I don't think I could have explained it half as well as these guys, but it is just really, really wonderful uh, studies like this that just blow my mind when it comes to evolution. I normally just look at finds, and it's stuff like this that makes me really excited especially when we consider the recent find of a new, in quotation marks, human species in South Africa. And this could be really, really cool to see their research applied to this. And instead of just looking at it as one thing taking over for the other, and then other things dying out in the process, seeing how everything's connected, I really, really can't wait till I see more research from these guys. I think it's going to be absolutely amazing. And from one cold place to another, we go to Alaska, where University of Utah scientists have deciphered the maternal genetic material of two babies that were buried together at an Alaskan campsite about 11,500 years ago. 
The scientists from the University of Utah not only found out that the infants had two different mothers, but also that they were the northernmost kin to two lineages of Native Americans found throughout North and South America. Now, I know that we've been breaking down a lot of old theories, but this one actually supports a theory, namely the Beringian standstill model, which states that the Native Americans came from Asia to Beringia across a land bridge that once linked Siberia and Alaska and spent up to 10,000 years there before they moved into the Americas roughly 15,000 years ago. Dennis O'Rourke, an anthropology professor at the University of Utah, as well as the study's senior author, says that these infants are the earliest human remains in northern North America, and they carry distinctly Native American lineages. We see diversity that is not present in modern Native American populations of the North, and we see it at a fairly early date. This is evidence there was a substantial genetic variation in the Beringian population before any of them moved south. You don't see any of these lineages that are distinctly Native American in Asia, even Siberia. So there had to be a period of isolation for these distinctive Native American lineages to have evolved away from their Asian ancestors. Now, the burial of ancient infants is rare in itself, but they are also rare in the fact that they are only one of eight known sites in North America that have human remains older than 8,000 years, and from which researchers have obtained mitochondrial DNA. Dr. Warwick actually adds that it is not common to find infants buried together that are not related maternally. It raises questions about the social structure and mortuary practices of these early people. Now, while the finds of the infants themselves are quite unique, their genealogical data is actually even more unique on their own. Warwick suspects that the 11,500-year-old infants may be either at or at least very near their respective roots for each of their genealogical trees, which is amazing in that it could mean we actually found the first real, real in quotation marks, Native Americans. O'Rourke actually says that modern tribal populations in northern North America show little mitochondrial DNA diversity. In small populations, some lineages just get lost and don't get passed on, and in others, they become established and more common. Now, keeping in mind the story we had earlier about human evolution, I wonder if these guys should start talking together. Might be a very cool area of research. And now for some more genealogy news, though concerning the Europeans instead of the Native Americans. This comes as a result of the sequencing of human genomes from human remains of the late Upper Paleolithic period, which actually shows a fourth strand of ancient European ancestry rather than the three which was most commonly held up to this point. Now this bit might get a bit tedious, but it is pretty important to understand kind of how and where we came from, and I know that the first bit actually contradicts our story last week on how humans moved into China, but for now, we need to roll with it. So, starting about 45,000 years ago, we get the first humans that are going in quotation marks out of Africa, some moving northwest into Europe, where they would settle the areas from Spain to Hungary, while others move east towards the Mediterranean and Levant, where they would develop the agriculture about 10,000 years ago. These early farmers would then expand into Europe. The recently discovered lineage is a mixture of both of these stories, where we get Western hunter-gatherers who move into the Caucasus region, which lies between the Black and the Caspian Seas, and is isolated by a series of mountains that work as a natural border. This new lineage comes as a separation from the people who settled Europe that split off and wandered into the Caucasus region, which lies between the Black and the Caspian Seas, where the mountains act as a very natural boundary between Europe. This group is known as the Caucasus hunter-gatherers in the article, 
This group of people is referred to in the article as the Caucasus hunter-gatherers and shows a very heavy mixture with the early farmers of the Levant area, which ends some 25,000 years ago, which is just before a glacial maximum. This glacial maximum results in a cutoff from major ancestral populations for as long as 15,000 years, which causes this group of Caucasus hunter-gatherers to shrink in population until the migrations begin again due to the ice receding. Now, jumping forward 10,000 years to about 5,000 years ago, we get another major population movement. This comes in the form of the Yamnaya, which is a population of horse-born steppe herders who move into Europe. Along with this movement, they bring metallurgy and animal herding, as well as the Caucasus hunter-gatherer strand of uh, DNA, which is actually in almost all European populations from the continent. Now, with all of that history covered, the big question is then, well, where did the DNA come from? And it actually comes from two graves in western Georgia, just south of the Caucasus Mountains. The one grave is over 13,000 years old, and the other grave is almost 10,000 years old. And what these graves actually show is that the Yamnaya owed at least half of their ancestry to this previously unknown and very distinct group of hunter-gatherers. The study's lead author, Dr. Andrea Manica of Cambridge University's Department of Zoology, said that the question of where the Yamna come from has been something of a mystery up to now. We can now answer that we found their genetic makeup is a mix of Eastern European hunter-gatherers and a population from this pocket of Caucasus hunter-gatherers who weathered much of the last ice age in apparent isolation. This Caucasus pocket is the fourth major strand of ancient European ancestry, one that we were unaware of until now. Now, while it may be tempting to think of the Caucasus hunter-gatherers as only having an influence ancestry-wise to the West, researchers have actually shown that they also had an influence to the East, specifically Southern Asia, where a similar population pops up, which is explained by Epi Jones, a doctoral student and first author of the paper. He states that India is a complete mix of Asian and European genetic components. The Caucasus hunter-gatherer ancestry is the best match we've found for the European genetic component found right across modern Indian populations. As a possible source of this genetic influence, if we can call it that, researchers have pointed towards the people who brought the Indo-Aryan languages into the area. And with that story, we have sadly reached the end of our podcast. However, I do believe we have covered some very interesting news, especially the story on disabilities and how they may have changed human evolution as a very significant factor. Very, very cool stories. Always nice when you get something like this. Now, of course, as always, if you want to view the sources for the stories, you can go to news.stonepages.com where you can find all of the sources as well as any of the stories that we missed in this week's podcast. If you can't get enough of us on the website, you can follow us on Twitter by using the Twitter handle at StonePages, where we will also be shooting some news at you. And with that, that has been all for this week. I've been your host, Philip Hansen, and I'll see you soon.